You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. So for the past two weeks, I've been the program staff director at camp, uh, which basically means that I'm in charge of assigning jobs and making sure that problems that occur during the week are dealt with, um, and basically making sure that the things that are in the background of camp get done. So the counselors uh, hang out with the kids and are with them basically 24-7, right? All, all day, every day. Um, the program staff makes sure the bathrooms are clean and picks up the, the grounds, make sure that there's not trash everywhere. Um, we, we staff recreation, we staff... Um, lifeguarding for the lake, um, and all of the things that make camp happen. Um, so that's, that's pretty much what I've been a part of in this past week. Um, I stepped into this role in 2015, which was four years ago, and I grew up in Wabash, Indiana. So I lived there until I was 12 years old, and then my, my family moved to North Carolina, to a small town called Snow Hill, um, and went to a church in Hookerton, North Carolina, and that's the school that I graduated from. Um, so I lived there for seven years. Then I went to school in Nashville, graduated from there, and before I graduated, uh, my church, my home church um, in Wabash, Indiana, asked me if I'd like to come intern. And I was like, yes, that would be so cool to go back to the place where I grew up and to intern there. Um, and as I was there, they... That summer, went to camp, just like we just did. We go to the same camp. Um, and they asked me to be the program staff director. And I was 21 years old, still in college, um, and very inexperienced. And my time at Emmanuel plus time at camp had been with people as I was a camper. Um, and as I, I was like a young child. I've, I've been going to that camp since 1999. Um, like every year, other than the year my sister was born and the year that I worked at a different camp. Um, so there's, there's a certain perception that, is, that you gain as a kid if people only know you as a kid, right? <laughs> so whenever, whenever I walked into that role, it was kind of hard to go to the, the staff people uh, that used to be in charge of me and maybe changed my diapers and like all of these things from whenever I was a kid, and no, you can't have that candy, stop making all this noise in church, and then I'm in charge of them as the program staff director, right? That's, that's difficult. <laughs> um, Jesus faced kind of a similar situation as we look at uh, John 4:43. 4, says, now after two days, he departed thence and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So Jesus grew up in the city of Nazareth. Um, and he, although we, we always picture Jesus as the 30-year-old person that we, we really have all the Gospels about, he also was a child at one point. Um, and he grew up in Nazareth, and he ran around and had fun. Um, and his earthly father was a carpenter, and everybody knew his mother, Mary. And we, we don't have the full story here in John 4, but in, John, in Matthew 13, um, Jesus is remarking that a prophet doesn't have any honor in his own country. And it says, this is the people's response. 
They say, is this not the car- carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they are offended, and they were offended by him. But Jesus said unto him, unto them, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country, and his own and in his own house. And he did not many, many or many mighty works because of their unbelief. So regardless of the fact that Jesus was healing people who were sick, and even this is later on, but you know, he's he raises the dead. He's, he's doing these incredible things. He's speaking as one who has authority, is how um, the Pharisees described him. He spoke as if he were one with the truth, and he understood exactly God's heart. Even though he's doing all these signs, he turned the water to wine in his own country. They're just like, that's just Jesus. Like, that we, we grew up with Jesus. We know Jesus. We, we like, saw him grow up, and there are his brothers and sisters. There's no way that this guy can claim to be, to like know God's heart and to do all these things. He's just Jesus. Um, In the Gospel of John, there's this theme throughout chapters 2 through 13 that really gets at this idea of Jesus doing something, and then that requires a response from the people around him. So it'll tell you an event, something that he did, a sign, right? So he does this sign, and then the people respond in a certain way. Um, so at, in his hometown, he does things. He, he continues doing the Jesus stuff that he does everywhere. And his, in his hometown, they're just like, that's just Jesus. Like, who, why, why does he think he's like more than just the kid that we have, we've always seen him to be? Um, whenever the water is turned to wine, we see that the disciples respond with belief. It says that the disciples believed who he was. They trusted him. So they had followed him already. They had left everything they had and they had followed him. But it was after that experience of the water being turned into wine that they, they realized this, but we can trust him because like, there's proof. Like he is the one. He is God. So they, they trust him. So that after that sign, we have a response. Nathaniel, whenever he's called, um, Jesus sees him under the tree before he was there and, and he tells Nathaniel this, and Nathaniel says, um, wow, this has got to be the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're amazed by this? You'll see greater things than this. Um, but Nathaniel responds with astonishment. He's like, whoa, Jesus is incredible. All right, so this is, this is a response. Jesus goes into the temple, and he sees the money changers um, basically making money off of people and cheating people out of money within the temple, this place that's supposed to represent God's presence here on earth. And Jesus flips the table and he, he gets the people all out of, um, all, all these money changers who are stealing people's money out of the temple. And this is, this is a clear sign, but then the people are talking to him and Jesus says, if you tear this place down, I will rebuild it in three days. And they're like, it took us 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to do it in three days? So they're, they're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? And it says later on, the disciples after the resurrection realized that he was talking about the temple of his body uh, being killed on the cross, going into the grave, being buried, and being risen three days later, right? And they, be- they responded in belief. At the time, it was just bewilderment and like, uh, we don't understand what this guy's talking about. 
Um, the Sam- Samaritan woman, Jesus tells her all that she ever did, everything that she ever did. And she is like, how in the world do you know all this? And then she tries to say, change the subject. Pastor Daniel talked about this last week. Um, but she responds in belief. And whenever she goes into the town, she says, come meet a man who told me all that I ever did. And surely this is the Messiah. And whenever they come, all the people meet Jesus. And after they met Jesus, they say, we, first we had heard, but now we've seen and we know that this is the Messiah. And all these people respond in belief. And what's amazing about that and the story that we're about to read is we have these stories of people within, like people who knew scripture, like the, the three-fourths of the Bible that we, we rarely read because it's pretty confusing, but the beginning of your Bible, the Old Testament, right? They, they had scripture. They learned it. Like the Jewish boys had to memorize great portions of the Old Testament. They grew up in like going to the temple um, and they were just in entrenched and immersed in Jewish culture. culture. But these people, Jesus went to them, and just like John 1 tells us, that he came unto his own, and his own received him not. They didn't receive him. a, A prophet has no respect in his own country, no honor in his own country. But he moves towards the outsider. And this is something that we see constantly in Jesus' ministry. His interactions, his signs, the Pharisees respond with skepticism and with hate and like, how can we kill this guy? Um, and we see the outsiders, the people who typically would not be cared for in society. The, the lame, the paralyzed, the blind, the Samaritans, the officials is the person we're going to read about today. The people who were not well-liked in society. These are the people Jesus goes to. He's not going to his own because his own received him not. But it says, to, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Jewish people were also very, very much, um, they believed that you had to be a Jew in order to know God. And now the Old Testament had ways in which outsiders could come to know Jesus, but they had really lost that. They were were not trying to be a light to the nations. They were trying to be as closed off as possible. And Jesus said, you can become sons of God. Not, Not because you are just a Jewish person and because you've been born with Jewish blood, but because of the will of the Father making you so through the power of the Son. You can become sons and daughters of God. In this story that we're looking at today, he moves towards a different type of outsider, a guy who works for an unjust government. Um, To give you a parallel of what is going on with the Jewish government and the Roman government. The Romans are the occupying power. They are the most powerful empire up to this point in world history. They are are a great empire, and they rule most of the known world. Um, and the Jews are a part of that known world, and they are occupied by the Romans. But they, they have their own government, but it exists within a larger Roman government. So the way I want to describe that is by student council at BMS. So I work at Boonville Middle School, um, and there is a student council that exists, all right? And you guys are probably familiar with this if you went to school. Um, <laughs> you have, like, people in your class that are elected as the class president, 
and the class treasurer and the vice president, which who knows what that person really does. They just kind of exist on student council. Um, and, all of, and the secretary, right? Um, and all these, these people, they have like this supposed power that exists and they, they can actually, they can make decisions and, oh, we're going to have decades week. And like they get to decide that, and this is going to be 70s day, and 80s, and 90s, and all, whatever. They they, have, they can make small decisions like that. They can prepare things for assemblies, um, and they can make those decisions. But if they tried to overstep their bounds and say, you know what, that rule about gum has always been a dumb rule. We don't want that anymore. We're doing away with the rule about no gum. You can have gum now. Or if they said all those rules about clothes and you can't wear some clothes and you need to wear certain clothes, stupid. We don't need that anymore. We're doing away with it. That would not work. If they said, you know what, the principal's kind of a mean person. We're just going to put a sixth grader on the throne of power at, at Boonville Middle School. <laughs> it wouldn't work, right? Um, the Jewish people existed in this tame, same type of dynamic. They had power, but really they didn't have that much power. They could operate a little bit within their realm, but they were occupied by, by a larger power in Rome. The, the guy that we're going to read about is an official. Um, whether he's Jewish or Roman, we don't really know, but he works for the government. So regardless of whether he's Jewish or Roman, he is despicable to the Jewish people. He is a horrible person because he is working for the evil outside, or the occupying power, the people who took them captive. So they do not like him. And this is the story that we have, starting in verse 46. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus came out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then, in, then inquired he of them the hour that he had begun, began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus had said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed in his whole house. This again, this is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So what I want to talk to you about today through this passage is the process of going from seeing Jesus to trusting Jesus. From seeing Jesus to trusting Jesus. I, I think we see this kind of laid out in this passage with the official. Um, Jesus had been to Cana before. All right? We talked about this several weeks ago. at Jesus' first miracle at Cana. Um, Jesus turns the water to wine. And whenever he does this, believe it or not, people found that pretty astonishing. And they told other people about it. And whether it was because this official had been at the wedding, maybe he was like the policeman who exists at weddings um, because there are a certain number of people and you have to have a, like someone there 
to make sure that the piece is kept or whatever. Or he just heard it through the grapevine that this had happened, right? Jesus, he had heard that Jesus turned the water to wine. Like, he could do incredible things. All right, so whenever Jesus is coming back into town, he is seeking him out because his son is on the brink of death. Um, And he finds Jesus because he's heard about Jesus. But the, the first step in people coming to know Jesus is they have to hear about Jesus. I'm dating Cherish. Uh, she's here this morning, so glad to have her here. Um, Tammy actually uh, texted me. This has been like five months ago. And she, she was like, would you be up for going on a date with a girl that I know? And I was like, I don't know. That's, that sounds like, that sounds strange. I don't want to go on a blind date, really. But I, I like thought about it, and then I was like, yeah, sure. So then Tammy sent me, like, her five most recent Facebook photos. Uh, and, and she told me that Cherish enjoys coffee and that she enjoys the outdoors and that she loves Jesus. And those are all great things and true facts about Cherish. But I did not know Cherish at that point. <laughs> I knew stuff about her enough to be like, oh, I'm going to go on a date. All right, but up to that point, I didn't know who she was, didn't know she existed. And because Tammy contacted me, I knew she existed and was willing to, to go on a date. Willing to go on a date. We, it was a yeah, really good decision. She, she more so, anyways. Um, <laughs> we went on a date, and I went from awareness of her, but it had to start with awareness, like to know that she exists, right? There's no way we'd be dating right now if I didn't know she existed. Whenever you're coming to know Jesus, whenever you're introducing people to Jesus, maybe you have experienced Jesus and you're telling other people, or maybe you haven't experienced Jesus and you are in the stage right now where you are learning about Jesus. There has to begin with awareness of who he is. So in the stories that we've seen, there are signs, there are these things that happen and there are events, and then the people around respond. But there's awareness brought through the events that we see. Um, for this man, he, he heard about Jesus, and he knew that Jesus was more than an ordinary man, and he had some level of belief that Jesus could do really awesome stuff and could probably do something for his son, and he seeks him out. But the second thing is there has to be meeting. All right? There has to be a meeting of the person of Jesus in order to come to know and trust Jesus. Right? So it's a process. It begins with awareness of who Jesus is, and then you have to meet Jesus. This is going from rumors and vague ideas and just hearsay to knowing and experiencing the truth of who he is in your life. So Cherish and I met at Planters uh, Coffee, um, and I chose Planters Coffee um, in Evansville because it was kind of a neutral spot. Um, because I go to proper all the time, and I know the baristas there, and I know a lot of the people who go there all the time. Um, And then I also go to the refinery in Newburgh, and I think they're both awesome coffee shops and actually enjoy them more than planters. But I chose planters because I knew that I would not run into anybody that I knew. So so, um, Cherish and I met up there, and I was finally able to go from the vague idea of Cherish, that she likes coffee, the outdoors, and she loves Jesus. 
to the fact that like she's a real person that I'm meeting face to face. And we were able to talk and uh, continue to go on dates and to, to get to know each other a little bit more, right? So it goes from awareness to actually meeting. Um, and this is how it works with Jesus. There's this process of realizing, realizing that Jesus is a real person, uh, going from hearsay, uh, the next step, going from hearsay and like, oh, I know about Jesus. Like, we're in the Midwest, right? Uh, the Midwest is not some someplace, we're, we're not in, I like California, so I'm not bashing California, but California is pretty devoid of um, just a generalized religion, and that exists a little bit more here. Um, people at least know the name of Jesus, right? Um, so the perception of Jesus exists largely in our culture, and like if you ask, if I were to ask, which I probably can't, but if if I were to ask kids at school, like, hey, do you know who Jesus is? They would be like, uh, yeah, Jesus, like, wasn't he a guy who, like, lived a long time ago and did really cool stuff or something, right? They have some idea or perception. But whenever you come to meet Jesus, this is getting to the truth of who Jesus is. And what, how this happens is the same way that Romans explains that it happens in Romans 9. It says, how beautiful are the feet of them that bring the good news. And you're like, why, why are their feet beautiful? Well, it's because they're bringing good news. Because where they go, they're bringing good news. And guess what, guys? We are called to have beautiful feet. We are called to go out and to bring the good news to those who don't know it. Because you know the truth. You've experienced the truth of who he is, and you are called to invite others into that truth. So, we, we have to go, we have to bring people from awareness of Jesus that he existed or that he supposedly existed or whatever they think about Jesus to the truth of God's word as revealed by you, his hands and feet who are out there being salt and light in the world. And we have to help them meet Jesus. For the official, he met Jesus. He met Jesus. He was able to meet him face to face and he said, my son's on the brink of death. Will you, will you heal him? And Jesus says, you're not going to believe unless I do a sign or a miracle. And the, the official says, please, my son is going to die. He says, go home, your son is healed. And it says that he believed. And we see that in that, so he leaves in faith that his son is healed. He, his son's not there. He doesn't really know. But he believes that Jesus is speaking the truth. And he has this faith, this trust that Jesus is going to deliver on his promises because of who he is. And we see that it goes from awareness of who Jesus is to knowing Jesus because you've met him face to face to a trust of Jesus because of a result of knowing who he is. So it's a process. So we have to, step three is to experience his grace and power. So having been going on dates... Uh, for a little while, um, we we went out for coffee. Um, it was really shortly in. We she invited me to go to one of her family's wedding, and I met like her entire family, um, and like all these these other opportunities that we had to to meet up for coffee. Or really, we did that a lot. Um, but we we hung out more and more. But there was a point where we had to go from like, okay, we're gonna keep meeting up to defining the relationship, to saying, okay, I trust you enough to say that we're going to be in a committed relationship, right? 
whenever we are introducing people to Jesus, there has to be an awareness. So that pretty much exists here in the Midwest. We have to help people meet Jesus. But then there has to be a point in every person's life, in your life, and in the people that you are witnessing to, where they have to define the relationship. Is Jesus who he said he was? The official believed, after meeting Jesus, that he was going to deliver on his promises. And he, whenever that happened, he went and told his whole house, and he said, this is who Jesus is, this is what he's done. And they, they all believed. He and his whole house believed and trusted Jesus. They, they trusted and had this relationship with him. So it has to progress beyond the point of just vague knowledge or even from the point of just head knowledge, but to a relationship with Jesus. But this is where the, the analogy between me and Cherish kind of breaks down. Because while in a relationship you have two parties, hopefully, like, trying their best to make things work out for each of you, right? In, in a marriage, in a dating relationship, in whatever, you are, two people are trying hard to do what's best for each other, and there's commitment and trust, and you're both working hard at that. In a relationship with Jesus, we are, we are dead in our sins. That's how we're described. We're dead. I mean, we, we're doing nothing. And while we were dead in our sins, he sought us out. I read a book uh, called David Copperfield. And I enjoy reading books. I think that they, they tell uh, stories of redemption that kind of mirror the story of redemption that we see in Scripture. And David Copperfield is one of these. Um, there's a guy in this book named Mr. Peggotty. And Mr. Peggotty has no children of his own, and he lives in a boat by the sea. And he's a fisherman, um, and he just kind of scrapes by. And he lives in this boat by the sea with kind of outcasts from society. Uh, they, they just live, and they have kind of like a happy family, but they don't really have uh, any familial connection. They're not actually related. None of them are related, and they're, they're very poor. But they enjoy being around each other, and there's, there's a lot of life and love that exists in this little boat by the sea. And... Mr. Peggotty adopted this little girl whenever he was, uh, or whenever she was abandoned. And her name is Lil Emily. So Lil Emily, and that is L-I-L, and then E-M apostrophe L-Y, <laughs> Emily. Uh, Lil Emily is this child that comes into Mr. Peggotty's life and becomes his own child. And he, he loves her as if she really were his. And he raises her up, and he, everything he does, he does for her. If he sees something um, that he feels like she's going to like, he brings it to her. He spends all of his free time with her, trying to make her happy. And little Emily grows up um, and works for Mr. Peggotty uh, in the town and is engaged to a, a very nice boy who lives in the same town. And one day, uh, David Copperfield and his buddy uh, Steerforth come into town, and Steerforth is this charismatic, very charming, and handsome man. Um, and he comes in, and he woos her, and they fall in love, right? And she, she knows that this is shameful because she's engaged. And she decides that she's going to leave in the middle of the night. Um, and she leaves a note to Mr. Peggotty saying, I, I know that I'm, I'm doing something wrong. I know that this is hurting you. I, because of that, I, I'm separating from you completely. 
and I'm sorry, I'll never see you again, and leaves. And she and Steerforth uh, are living together, and they go, to, they go to London, and they're living there for two years. And then Steerforth decides, I'm going to move on, and he leaves her. And she's stuck in London with no place to go, no real way to make money, no family connections, no one to depend on. And she is stuck on the streets with no options, really. But for the past two years, Mr. Peggotty, after reading that note, he did not become, he didn't like sulk and then just say, man, I just can't believe, where did I go wrong? And he's like, well, at least she's not here to bother me anymore. He sought her out. He went to London and he tried to follow her trail. Where did she go? How did she get there? Who did she talk to? Um, and he's, he's following the trail, investigating for years, trying to figure out where she is. And after years of searching and searching and searching, he finds her at the brink of prostitution. She's, she isn't sure what she's going to do to make money, and she's almost at that point. And he finds her down in the dumps with nothing going for her, and he rescues her. And he establishes a new life for her. They move to Australia and try to give her a distance from what she had done. And this is the picture of God reaching out for us. We are like little Emily. We have rebelled against God. We're not even at this neutral state where we can like we could do good or we could do bad. We have rebelled against him after all the good that he did in creating us. So we have rebelled against him. We've fled from him. We've sought our own way. We've decided to define good and evil for ourselves. We, we said that we know more than our creator. And in response, God didn't say, good riddance. We, that was, that, my creation is just horrible. I'm, I, I'll just start over with something different. Instead, God became a man. He took on flesh. He came, walked on this earth. He dealt with the paralyzed, with the blind, with the lame, with all of these people. He's pushing back the evil that mankind welcomed in through the miracles that he's doing here on earth. And then he went to the cross and took sin and death and evil upon him. All of the things that we caused, he took upon him at the cross and died. And he suffered hell for us for three days. And then he was raised, and he gives us the hope of his life. And whenever we are dead in our sins, he seeks us out. And whenever we believe in him, we are united with him. And it's no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. And we're united with him. And we have life with him. He rescues us in our brokenness. Trusting Jesus is a process. It begins with awareness of who he is. Coming to have the truth of who he is through scripture, through someone in his church speaking to you about who he is. And then it moves to this relationship where Jesus has sought us out and we trust him because of all the things he's done, we trust him to rescue us out of our brokenness.
The official chose to trust. So I don't know if you're the one who thinks that they have a lot of good things, that they, they have to do a lot of good things in order to go to heaven, or if you think that you're, you're good enough to get into heaven uh, just because you've been in church your whole life and you've lived a pretty, pretty good moral life, or if you just feel like you're on the opposite side of the spectrum and you're like, I have lived a horrible life and I'm just broken and I'm dirty and there's no way that Jesus would, would come for me. But you can rest in the fact that Jesus took the first step. Jesus sought us out. And we only need to respond with trust and obedience to the one who did everything for us. This is grace. This is grace reaching out for us. As a result of the grace that Jesus has demonstrated um, through the his power over disease and death and the grave, but specifically in this situation over disease, the, the official responds with trust that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who would die and be raised again and take his place on the throne of the universe as the God who chased down his creation. We are left in the same place as every crowd that is described in the book of John. In John, we have a sign and we have a response. So today, you have been, you've heard explained to you a sign that Jesus did, and then the ultimate sign that he did in demonstrating his power over all evil here on earth, your personal evil, and the big picture evil that exists in the world, and the stuff we see on the news. He took it all on the cross, and as a result of that sign, it necessitates a response. What will your response be? Is your response going to be trust? Or is it going to be, nah, I, Jesus, I've, I've known about Jesus my whole life. I'm so familiar with him. Like, I, I've already got it figured out, Jesus. Like, I'm, I'm going to do good things on my own. Or is it skepticism? I don't know about this guy. Like, I, I just, I know what you're saying, but I don't, I don't think I can fully trust Jesus. It's a process. You have to come to know Jesus. You have to know that he exists, that he was a real person, and then you have to know the truth of Jesus. And then you have to come to a trusting relationship with Jesus who reaches out for you. And if you have not done that today, then we would love to talk to you about that. But for you who are here and you have experienced a relationship with Jesus, I hope that this can be encouraging to you as you are speaking to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your friends, to your family members, who you have talked to about Jesus, and you're like, man, they, they're never going to know Jesus. You have to remember that it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not a thing where you're, you're just like, hey, Jesus died for you. And then you're like, wait, what? You don't, what do you mean you're not going to follow Jesus? It's a, it's a process. So trust the fact Jesus can still work through you to help people to come to know him. But if you have experienced the relationship with Jesus, then just like the official who went home and he told everybody in his family and in his household, all the workers around, he told them about what Jesus had done and they too believed and trusted Jesus. You should be telling other people about Jesus. 
You should be telling people about the, this awesome thing that Jesus has done, how Jesus is working in your life. As the musicians come forward, I want to call for you to respond in the same way that John describes all these crowds responding to what Jesus has done. If you haven't experienced relationship with Jesus, then I want, I want to ask you, do you believe who he is? Do you believe if he is, that he has done the things that he has said he's done and that I've told you about this morning? If so, then he deserves your all. He's your creator. You belong with him. It doesn't matter your brokenness and how separated you feel from God. He is reaching out to you in this moment. You just have to surrender everything to him. Give it back. The life that you've taken and you've tried to create your own meaning and purpose, give it back to him so that he can restore you. Go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. The other group of you here um, are the, the ones who have experienced the grace of Jesus. And maybe you're here and you haven't been telling people about the grace that you've experienced. Or maybe you have, but you're discouraged and, some, and God has placed somebody on your mind today that you've been speaking to, but you've been discouraged. You're like, they, they don't know Jesus yet and I've, I've already told them about him and I don't understand why this isn't working. Understand it's a process. Try to identify where they are in that process and and think about, pray about how God can help you to speak the words that they need to hear, to have the beautiful feet that preach the good news of the gospel. So if you're in either one of those camps, you're thinking about somebody that you need to share Jesus with and to move them along in the process, then I hope that you come down here and pray about that relationship, about your sharing with that person, or if you're here and you have never responded to the amazing grace that we sung about, to the amazing grace of Jesus reaching down for us, I pray that you come down here and you, you'll speak to, to me or to another leader that you know about that relationship. Go ahead and stand. If you feel like God is working on your heart, come down here and pray.